The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. My next guest is a, an author, um, author of, of two novels, very successful novels, an award-winning uh, radio presenter on the BBC and a retired vicar. Which makes it all the more remarkable that in a recent profile in the Sunday Times of him, they referred to two years that he spent, and I quote, on a bender of ecstasy, cocaine and speed, which is not what one thinks of as uh, of an award winning BBC vicar. Uh, Richard Coles, how are you? Well, I'm all right now, thank you. It was a long time ago. By, uh, that was part of my misspent youth, and I'm now in idle old age. So um, we're talking nostalgia here. Your misspent youth was misspent as half of the communards. Well, a chunk of it was. I mean, I misspent a lot more youth than the, than the youth that I uh, was in when I was in the communards. But yes, there was quite a spectacular misspending. Do you look back at that as the same person that you now are, or does it seem like a, an entirely different world and individual? Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, I think Cardinal Newman observed that to live is to change. And so I've certainly changed a bit as I've lived my life. But I do see lots of continuities, really. And, you know, I'm not the only person who's had um, a kind of slightly colourful past who's found himself uh, involved in the life of the church and indeed um, in, in in ordained ministry. Um, I suppose mine's just been a little bit more noticeable than many others. Did your calling to the church, did it travel with you, albeit paused during that period, or did it come to you after that period? Well, I mean, no, because I was a confirmed atheist from the age of eight until my late 20s, when I went into a church one day as a sort of sceptical spectator, and something happened, and I came out as a participant. But um, in retrospect, I think it had always been. I was a chorister when I was a kid, John, and you know, lots of people in England who go through that. You're formed at the age of eight, nine, ten for life, really. And uh, when I needed it, I knew where to go. You said something happened. What happened? I just all of a sudden encountered the mystery of the grace of God, I think, where when I was least prepared and expecting it, it just sort of happened. Again, you know, it's happened to lots of people, I think, and, and I'm one of them. And is, is, it, is it a feeling? Is, is it a sense that you're communing with God? How does one experience the grace of God? Well, in your own bespoken individual way, I guess. For me, it felt like, I don't know, it was like sort of falling instantly in love, but in a way that kind of involved every every um, centimetre, every ounce, every gram, every part of my being in existence. It was like kind of light coming on and, and sort of waters rushing. And it sounds like a Hollywood euphemism for a, an orgasm, doesn't it? It wasn't really like that. <laughs> <laughs> and how does it compare in excitement terms being a vicar versus being a communard? I would have thought a man who was <laughs> wired to enjoy the latter couldn't enjoy the former. Well, no, I mean, the, being a communard was full of excitement and diversion and amusements and um, fulfillment, but it was doesn't compare with being a vicar. I mean, I love being a vicar. I To find yourself doing the thing that you're made for, I think, is um, enormously powerful. But I loved being stuck into the life of a community. I loved being part of the stories of people's lives, their hopes, their fears, what motivated them, uh, what what frightened them, what they aspired to. And, you know, baptizing the kids and marrying the parents, usually in that order, burying the grandparents. It was, it's a wonderful thing. And what did your parishioners make of your past? Well, I think at first, perhaps they were a little startled by it, because I don't think they'd had a vicar 
who'd had a number one record before. I'm fairly confident of that. <laughs> and also, I've always been, I think, I hope, very open about my past, indeed my present, and and speculating about my future. So I didn't want there to be a sense that there was anything I was holding back apart from uh, you know what was absolutely necessary to hold back. Once they got to know me, I think they rather enjoyed it, really. I wish I'd been more available to them. I, mean, I was a half-time vicar because it was a parish that couldn't afford a full-time vicar, which meant I was free to do other things. So they got rather used to me kind of being at the church fete on Sunday and then being on MasterChef on Monday, you know. And what caused you to um, retire? Is that the, the correct term for yeah. somebody who is no longer a vicar? What caused you to retire? Well, partly it was because I'd been in my parish for 12 years, and I think I'd pretty much done, as to the best of my ability, what I wanted to do when I arrived. And I began to think that what needed to be done in the future would be better done by somebody else. I think anyone who gives their life to an institution, be that the Church of England or be it, uh, I don't know, the BBC or whatever, I think there's certain things that come with that burdens that you have to shoulder, that when you put them down, you think, I wish I hadn't carried that for quite so long. Because it's, I remember a bishop once saying to me when I was moaning about the state of the Church of England, he said, Father, you must remember all institutions are demonic. Good Lord, that's quite a statement for a bishop in the Church of England. Well, I don't know. Bishops in the Church of England are rather given to saying such things, which is one of the reasons why I like them. <laughs> What about the issue? Because when, when people analyse your decision to depart from ministry, one of the things that is usually quoted is the church's attitude towards the um, blessing of, of gay unions. Is there is there truth in that, that, that that was part of your motivation to quit? Yes. I mean, the church I joined was one that I thought was moving towards um, an acceptance of, if not equal marriage, then at least the opportunity for people who wish to marry same-sex couples to have you know, the chance to do so. And then that rather went into reverse a little bit, I think, because there was such a spirited resistance to it by people who took a more conservative view. And, uh, you know, that's a big battle. It's a battle in one form or another I've been having since I was a teenager. And after a while, I was just kind of tired of it, really. And in my own life, uh, my, my partner, David, died. And then I went into widowhood. And then I met somebody new. And I thought, well, I'm going to proceed with this relationship because I think it's a good and holy thing. And I didn't really want to have any embarrassing conversations with the bishop about it. So all those things came together, plus the opportunity to uh, you know, make a living by doing other things. And I thought, okay, let's move into a new chapter. You mentioned your um, partner, David, dying. He died very young. He was only 43. He was, uh, yes, he was 43, but he was an alcoholic. And like lots of people who are addicted to alcohol or other substances, it's a life-limiting fate you find yourself with. And so, unfortunately, yeah, he, he died at 43, which was a tragedy and awful. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to live with that as best I can. Did you think that was what was going to happen when you saw the level to which he was drinking? Well... Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I sort of knew if I still stepped back from it that he would, he wouldn't make old bones because, you know, people with that sort of addiction don't. But when he actually died, it came as a sort of brutal shock, really, because I think if you lose, you know, if your your partner dies, your spouse dies, it, even if you see it coming, it's still pretty brutal. And how did you uh, avoid addiction? Because we talked sort of jokingly earlier about the, the period of sort of hedonism in your youth. That that period of hedonism can go one of two ways. So how did you avoid it going the other way? I think I've got on some level a highly developed sense of self-preservation. And although I think I got pretty close to disaster, I think I knew when I had to pull back 
and and I did. And now I don't want that sort of drama in my life. I don't particularly wish to sort of flirt with danger and risk in the way I did then. I want steadiness, and I want to uh, enjoy life and to do what I can to enjoy it with other people. You know. You mentioned the the sort of the, the freedoms that come with with post vicardom. Have you particular plans for what you want to do with those freedoms? Well, I mean, you know, I was a vicar and I used to present a program on the BBC called Saturday Live. So that wiped out my weekends for sort of 20 years, really, or more than 20 years. And so now I am with Christmas, Easter and weekends available for other things. I'm really just kind of seeing people and spending time with my family and my friends and rediscovering myself as someone who's part of a family, someone who's part of a social world. And... It's great, actually. It's like a sort of new chapter that I didn't see coming. I mean, you know, I've not given up priesthood. I'm not quite sure what form it's going to take in the future. I could never give that up. Um, but I'm enjoying – here's a weird thing, John. I, I've learned to stop smiling at people in the new place I live. Now, if you're a vicar in a dog car and you smile at strangers, that's okay. If you're not in a dog car, it just looks sinister. <laughs> so I've learned to stop doing that. <laughs> You have also, of course, taken up writing because your your second um, novel, uh, Death in the Parish, recently released. What caused you to believe? Because most people who have a novel in them produce it when they are in their youth. They don't tend to do it when they are you know, well-established in middle age. What caused you to say, I think there's something in me? Well, you know, as, the, as people say, everyone's got a novel in them. The job is to get it outside you. But getting it outside you is, um, you know, contingent on all sorts of different things. I think partly I'd written a lot of nonfiction and I started wanting to create an imagined world with some imagined characters in to see what would happen. I think also I wanted to write out of my own experience, but in a way which wasn't claiming any sort of biographical fidelity. Um, and also I've always loved, um, I've always loved murder mysteries and I'm fascinated by the idea of these sort of enigmatic detectives like well Sherlock Holmes was my favourite because our detectives ex officio it's one of the things that comes with the job I think and so all that stuff came together and I thought well I'll have a go and do you enjoy the process or I think it was was it Dorothy Parker who said that she didn't enjoy writing she enjoyed having written or are you exactly in that category that. I mean yeah I mean getting going is when you're at the bottom of the mountain looking up that I don't particularly enjoy but then you sort of get into your stride and I like that but there's no satisfaction like typing the end (laughs) (laughs) lastly I mentioned a couple of times that you were one half of the commune arts how is your attitude towards the other half of the commune arts because that has your your views on Jimmy Somerville have have, um, had peaks and troughs over the years well I mean I love Jimmy very much and I'm a huge admirer of Jimmy um, but he also, you know, we went through an extraordinary time together. A lot of that was very turbulent. And we saw the best of each other. And we saw the worst of each other. And I suppose, you know, there's no shortage of goodwill. But any relationship like that is tempered by experience, I suppose. But um, I, I'm just very, very grateful that I met him as an extraordinary person who had some knocks and some bumps and some bruises along the way. But I can't wish him anything but the very best. But what caused your view to soften? Was it was it part of of the changes in you? Was it the changes in him? Did well, you I get think you get older? You get more understanding. I think I'm able to imagine a little more readily what Jimmy's life was like. You know, Jimmy had a very tough start in life that affected him. I have my own wounds. To, and of course, that affects me. But I think now in, in age, I hope that we would be able to look back on our time together with affection and fondness and generosity to each other. Do you see him often? 
No, I don't. I mean, we've, we, we, we're in touch, but mostly now it's to share condolences when people we know die. So there's been an awful lot of emailing about that. And it's always very affectionate when we do. I think it's a bit like your ex-wife or your ex-husband. You know, you have enormous shared experience. There's water under the bridge. They're not part of your life in a day-to-day way now, but no regrets. Well, Richard, you're very good to come on this morning. That is Richard Coles. Um, the new book, of course, A Death in the Parish, is available in all good bookshops. Great pleasure talking to you, Richard. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at 9 on News Talk.